Titus chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, as you can see on the screen, is our text for today. Follow along as I read this introduction. Paul, a bondservant, a slave of God, and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested even His Word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. What makes the Christian life so difficult? Why is it so hard to think and live the way that we know we're supposed to? I was thinking as we were singing, Behold Our God, it's easy to live the Christian life on Sunday morning. Well, at least when we're at church. <laughs> Once we get here, it's easy. Maybe before, not so much. But Well, the reason it's easy to live the Christian life, the reason it's easy to think and live the way we're supposed to here on Sunday mornings is very directly correlated to the reason why it's so difficult when we're not here. Well, we could point to some external factors that make the Christian life so difficult. Society at large rubs against biblical truth and morality. Uh, Perhaps the lives of our friends or co-workers or family members fellow students are so different from ours that there's a pressure to conform. Certainly, we see ungodly relationships and distorted morality and lifestyles promoted as normal in entertainment and the media. Sometimes living the Christian life means being subject to mocking and ridicule. It means losing your job, not getting a promotion or not being accepted in the social circles that you desire. And so again, there's a desire to conform and make life just a little bit easier. But even if you set aside those external desires, no matter where you are, no matter what's going on around you, you always have your own heart, don't you? And your own heart has sinful tendencies that make pursuing a life of godliness very difficult. Well, as we've said in recent messages, the central verse, both literally and figuratively in Titus, is chapter 2, verse 14, which says, Christ Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. And in this letter, Paul lays out what a life zealous for good deeds looks like in the home, in the church, and in society. But Paul is not unaware of the difficulty of living that very life that we're called to. He knows that going from a life of sin as an unbeliever to a life that is radically different as a believer is very challenging. One may live in the same home or go to the same school or to the same workplace as you did when you were an unbeliever, but the way that you approach those things as a believer ought to be completely different. Things that are, or that were normal and generally acceptable lifestyles like lying, sleeping around, cheating on your taxes, 
cussing people out, those things are no longer acceptable. To go from living for yourself and your own desires to living for God can be painful as you learn more and more the sacrifices that are required. So again, why are these things so difficult? Well, I would submit to you that perhaps chief among the variety of reasons we could identify is that we don't understand our salvation as much as we should. We don't fully appreciate what it means that God came to earth in a body, died on a cross to pay the penalty that we deserve. We struggle to comprehend what it means to be reconciled to the creator of the universe. We are so consumed by the here and now of our lives that we don't have time to consider the grander realities of life in the kingdom of God. Now when we're here, when we're singing songs like Behold Our God, or when we're hearing the word of God read or preached, we are confronted with those realities and and it's like, yes, I want to live that. I want to believe that. I love that. But then we go to work on Monday morning, or we go to a home that is hostile to Christ, or we go to a circle of friends who don't know Christ, and we forget the, the realities that are so helpful to us here. Well, the, life, the Christian life is difficult, and so in the wisdom of God, as, as Paul emphasizes Christian living in this epistle, he starts out in the introduction with realities that help us focus on the foundations of life, those things that really matter. And the outline we've been working through, and we'll finish today, Lord willing, is, the th- is three ingredients that fuel a life zealous for good deeds. Three ingredients that fuel a life zealous for good deeds. We've spent a couple of weeks talking about your position, knowing your position from God. That's the first ingredient knowing your position from God. Second, as we'll see today, the second ingredient is knowing your purpose from God. Knowing your purpose from God. And then third, the third ingredient is knowing your promise from God. Knowing your promise from God. As, as I've said, if you don't know who you are, you will be easily swayed by the shifting sands of your emotions and the pressures around you. And if you don't know why you're here, you will be distracted by lesser goals and purposes. And if you don't know what God has promised, the things of this world will become far too important to you. Again, that first ingredient is knowing your position from God. And just for the sake of a brief review, we've seen in verse 1 that we are slaves of God, ambassadors for Christ, and chosen of God. These aren't our only identities, of course. A variety of Scripture passages reveal additional identities, like we are adopted sons and daughters of God. We are justified saints before a holy God. We are co-heirs with Christ. But at a fundamental level, we are owned by God. We're owned by God by virtue of being His creation and by virtue of being purchased by the blood of Christ. And being owned means that He has complete control over us. We owe Him our allegiance and submission. There really is no greater privilege than being a slave of God because He is the 
most loving, benevolent master one could ever ask for. He gave his life for us. He provides for us. He meets our every need. He he is with us to help us and encourage us and comfort us and guide us. He is always for us and never against us. Well, as his slaves, he has given us the privilege of serving as, as his ambassadors out in the world. We have the joy of representing the King of Kings and extending his offer of forgiveness to those who don't yet know him. And then finally, as we saw last week, we saw that because of our sinful nature, our redemption was only possible because God chose to save us. Left to ourselves, we would have remained in our rebellious, hostile condition until we would be finally judged in that day when we would be separated from God for all eternity. But by His will, He shined the light of Christ into our hearts and gave us the, the gift of faith and repentance. We are slaves of God, we are ambassadors for Christ, and we are chosen of God. And knowing these positions should fuel our lives because we realize that we serve the Lord of Lords and are privileged beyond measure. Well, as we move into the rest of the passage, the second ingredient is to know your purpose from God. Know your purpose from God. And we see this even still here in verse 1. And look at that with me. Again, he says, uh, Paul, a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. Paul states here that in no uncertain terms, the purpose for which he was appointed as an, ap- as an apostle is for the faith of the elect and the proclamation of the truth. The faith of the elect and the proclamation of the truth. That is Paul's purpose for his own apostleship. And as in studying these two purposes for his apostolic ministry, we can discern God's purpose for us in our lives as well. So let's begin by considering what it means for Paul to have been commissioned as an apostle for the faith of those chosen of God. One of the most common objections to the doctrine of election is the idea that if God has chosen whom He's going to save, then why should we evangelize? Why go out of our way to proclaim the gospel to the mass of humanity when God already knows who's going to be saved and, frankly, He's going to save them no matter what we do, right? Well, there are a number of things that could be said in response, but I think the most significant reason that evangelism is essential is this. God saves the elect through the gospel proclaimed by people. Listen to how the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to explain this in Romans chapter 10, verses 12 to 15. He writes, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on Him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then he asks a series of questions. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in Him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach if they're not sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news, 
of good things. And then he concludes that section by saying, so faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes by the Word of Christ. Well, we don't know what Paul's face looked like, and we certainly don't know what his feet looked like, but I would venture to guess that they were not very beautiful. They were likely unsightly and calloused and bore the marks of walking on dirt roads in sandals all of his life. But to those who, who heard the good news of forgiveness of sin, made possible by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Paul's feet were beautiful because they represented the best news in the world having come to them. Now, being all-powerful, God could obviously choose any means He wanted to save people. If He wanted, He could choose to just randomly awaken hearts and, and reveal Himself to people at random times. If God wanted, He could instantaneously awaken souls and save people by taking the right pill. If He wanted, He could even save people by ensuring that they are touched by an angel. But 1 Corinthians 1.21 says, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Preaching is God's chosen method to bring about salvation. People need to hear the good news in order for them to believe it, and it is, and it is that way because God designed it that way. Now, Scripture not only looks at unbelievers and says the only way they're going to be saved is if they hear the gospel proclaimed. It also looks at believers and says the reason they are saved is because they heard the word being proclaimed. First Peter one twenty three says, for you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. Speaking in similar terms, James writes, in the exercise of his will, notice, His will, He brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among His creatures. Again, as we said last time, salvation is the result not of our will, but of the exercise of God's will, by which or which resulted in the new birth by means of the proclamation of the gospel, the word of truth. When writing his letter to the Thessalonian church, the first letter. Paul encouraged them by telling them of their reputation among the churches in the region. He said, for they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath of God. And so we could ask, well, why did they turn from idols to God? Paul goes on to say, for this reason, we constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. So Peter and Paul and James all agree that in order for people to get saved, they have to hear the gospel preached. Now, don't think too narrowly about this. Most often we think about preaching as going, what's going on right now. We gather together with the saints on Sunday to sing songs of praise and hear the Scripture read, and then someone gets up and preaches for an hour. But preaching is not defined by the length of the message, nor is it defined by the context of a worship service. Preaching is simply proclaiming a message. 
Preaching is speaking truth. Perhaps you've heard the saying that Christians should preach the gospel to themselves every day. Well, this doesn't mean that every morning you should get up in front of your mirror and with a, uh, a bunch of notes in your hands and say, well, good morning. It's good to see you this morning. Let's turn to this passage and go on preaching the gospel to yourself. No, preaching the gospel to yourself means to daily, regularly be reminding yourself of what Christ has done for you and who you are in Him. Preaching really can happen anytime, anywhere, and with anyone. In Acts 20, as Paul was giving his final farewell message to the Ephesian elders, he said to them, you yourselves know how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was unprofitable, anything that was profitable, and teaching you publicly and from house to house. He goes on to say, and now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. And then later on he says, therefore be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. So in this passage he says, declaring, teaching, preaching, and admonishing. Those are all words that describe Paul's ministry of the Word among the Ephesians. And we can certainly make distinctions of those words, uh, between those words. There is also significant overlap. They are all referring to speaking the Word of God, whether in private or in public, whether one-on-one or in a group. And the result of Paul doing those things for all of that time is recorded in Acts 19, and it says, All who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. This was Paul's purpose, to proclaim the word of God so that people would be saved. But not only that, even as Paul says there in Acts 20, he wasn't just an evangelist. His purpose was also to strengthen the faith of the the believers, to expand their knowledge of the truth. And that's the second phrase that we see here in chapter 1, verse 1, that he is an apostle for the knowledge of the truth. The early Christians had the Old Testament, but that's it in terms of Scripture. It took years and decades for the resurrection of Jesus before the Gospels were written. Uh, The New Testament letters were written over a span of 50 to 60 years. So Paul's ministry included preaching and teaching the Word of God so that these early believers would know what it is that they are to believe and how it is they are to live and what are the implications of being a follower of the Messiah. And also, what should they be looking for in terms of hope for the future? This was Paul's great concern. And listen to the way he prayed for the Colossians Uh, In Colossians chapter 1, the Colossian believers, he says, We have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. At At the end of his second letter to the believers scattered throughout Asia, Peter wrote these final words, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, Christianity is not a mystical religion. True spirituality is not 
blind faith or some ethereal experience. Emptying your mind might be one way, one or the path to enlightenment in some false religions, but that is not at all what God wants us to do. True biblical Christianity is understanding reality from God's perspective, which is revealed through the apostolic ministry of Paul and Peter and others, and then brought down to us in the Bible. In the Gospel of John, Jesus connects the knowledge of God with eternal life this way. He says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Paul says in Colossians 2.3 that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. This is why Peter says in 2 Peter 1.3, his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. What does this mean for us? Do you have troubles in your life? Are you wrestling with sin? Are you suffering at the hands of others? Are you trying to figure out what life is all about? Are you bored with life? Do you lack the wisdom you need for handling situations? Are you trying to make decisions about the future? What we all need is wisdom. What we all need is knowledge. In our decision-making, we need to factor in not just our own perspective and, and the information and the facts that are around us, but we need to factor in God's perspective and God's priorities. I mean, this world at large and our own individual lives are far too complex for us to rely on our own wisdom. We desperately need to know Christ more. After all, if our, if our lives are aimed at becoming more like Him, how can we do that if we don't know Him? There is a, a grave danger, really, of being part of Hope Bible Church or a church like ours. When you're part of a church that aims to teach and preach the Bible, it becomes very easy to become complacent. It becomes easy to become content with what you know. It's not that we think we know everything, we know we don't. It's that we think we know enough. Sometimes when I'm having counseling conversations with someone, I'll, I'll ask this question, something like, is the issue here that, that you don't know what the solution is? Or is the issue that you know what the solution is, you just don't know how to implement it? And usually the answer is the latter. I think I know what the solution is, I just don't really know how to go about handling it. And sometimes that bears out to be true. But many times it doesn't take long before I realize, actually, they, they don't know the, the real problem or the solution at all. Their, their thoughts about the situation have been too shallow. They've identified some problems, but they missed the heart of it all that Jesus would reveal to them. All of us, myself included, often deceive ourselves into thinking that we know everything we need to know. It's not uncommon for me as I'm reading a, a book to skim par whole paragraphs thinking, oh, I already know that. I already know that. I've heard that before. How often when we're listening to sermons do we more or less check out thinking, oh, I, I know that truth. I know that passage. I've heard that story before. 
Paul's ministry was aimed at helping the people of God know God and know Jesus Christ, not just for the purpose of saving them, but for the purpose of sanctifying them, for building them up, for strengthening them, for giving them wisdom and knowledge, because it's only in knowing Christ that we have access to the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, as it says in Colossians 2. It really is impossible for us to arrive at knowing all that God has revealed about Himself and all that we need for life and godliness. We never arrive, we need to be growing. And so if this was Paul's purpose in his day and for the believers in his time, what is the implication for our lives today? What can we identify as the purpose of our lives? Paul's purpose was to proclaim the truth for the purpose of saving and sanctifying believers. What is our purpose? Well, first of all, we can certainly identify the purpose that we are purposed to know God. We must know God. We must be growing in our knowledge of God. We are made to be in relationship with Him, meaning to glorify Him, to enjoy Him, to live with Him. But the Scripture says, excuse me, that's what the Scripture means when it says all things are from Him and through Him and to Him. We exist because God made us, we're alive because God sustains us, and our lives are designed to be lived for His glory. We are to take the apostolic preaching handed down to us in Scripture and learn from it and and live it out. We here in the 21st century are privileged more than anyone else in human history. We have access to untold resources. Most of us have multiple Bibles in our homes and a multitude of Bibles on our phones and resources beyond what we can ever imagine reading. We have no excuse to not be growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ, but that is God's purpose for us. Paul's prayer for the believers in Colossae applies to us today. We ought to be growing in the knowledge of God. That is our purpose. And so you can ask yourself, are you growing in the knowledge of God? Are you just content with sitting, hearing a sermon once a week? Are you reading God's Word? Are you taking it in and drinking that life-giving food for your life? But growing in the knowledge of God is not an end to itself, right? Paul says knowledge puffs up. Knowledge must lead to a transformed life. And that was Paul, part of Paul's prayer there in Colossians, remember? He said, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work. Knowledge should lead to a transformed life. And that's what we see in the rest of Titus. Knowing God and His Son, Jesus Christ, must lead to a life zealous for good deeds. And that's what Paul means here when he says at the end of verse 1, that the knowledge of the truth is according to godliness. In our Sunday morning, or excuse me, Saturday morning men's ministry, we've been going through uh, Jerry Bridges' book, The Practice of Godliness. And in that book, Jerry Bridges defines godliness as a devotion to God that leads to a life that's pleasing to God. Godliness is a devotion to God that leads to a life that's pleasing to God. And he further defines devotion as fearing God 
which Solomon defines as uh, the beginning of wisdom, and loving God, which of course is the greatest commandment. And when you're fearing God and you're loving God rightly, that leads to a desire for God. And so again, you can ask yourself, am I fearing God? Am I loving God? Do I desire God? If you don't desire God, if you have no interest in knowing God, then that tells you you don't fear Him or love Him. Now, we'll talk more about godliness as we get further into Titus, but for now, set this in your mind. The purpose, your purpose in life is to know God, and that knowledge of God should produce godliness in your life. But we can go one step further. Not only is it God's purpose for us to know Him and to live for Him, it's also His purpose that you and I follow in the footsteps of the apostles and spread the knowledge of God. This begins in the home, Ephesians 6.4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Or Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 7, These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. Deuteronomy 4 9 tells us that this is not just an instruction for fathers, but also for grandfathers. There it says, only give heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently so that you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen. And they do not depart from your heart all the days of your life, but make them known to your sons and your grandsons. So spreading the knowledge of God should take place in the home. Also, each one of us has the responsibility to spread the word of God, the knowledge of God in the context of our relationships in the local body of Christ. Colossians 3.16 says, let the word of Christ dwell richly within you, or you could say among you, with all teaching and admonishing one another, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now, we should be like the believers in Rome of whom Paul said, and concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced about you that you are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. The Word of God should be spreading among us, not just from the pulpit or from the lecterns or the classes, but as we speak to one another, as we have small group discussions, as we send email exchanges or have text messages back and forth. You know, it is true that our church has a counseling center, but the truth is that we should be a counseling center. In the sense that the Word of God and biblical truth should permeate our words as we encourage and comfort and love and instruct and admonish and exhort one another. But we shouldn't stop there, not just in the home and in the church. Your purpose is to also spread the knowledge of God in the world. We're all familiar with Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And you know, one of the primary times, one of the most significant opportunities we have to spread the knowledge of God in the world is when we are being mistreated. 
First Peter 3.15 14 14.15 says, But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear their intimidation. Do not be troubled. But sanctify, set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts. Recognize who your master is. Always being ready to make a defense for everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. One of the ways that we spread the knowledge of God in the world is as we are on the receiving end of wrongdoing, our response should elicit from people a question. They should be asking, why are you reacting that way? Why are you not reacting like everybody else reacts? Well, here in Titus 2, we learn that one of the reasons we are to live according to divine wisdom is so that the word of God will not be dishonored. And what that means is our lives should spread an accurate and consistent understanding of God's word. Paul also tells slaves in Titus 2 to conduct themselves in such a way that makes the doctrine of God attractive. In other other words, the way we live should put on display the beauty and the goodness of God's design. If we live contrary to God's word, we're spreading false information about God. We're saying he's not worthy to be obeyed. His His design isn't good. His standards aren't right. No, our lives ought to spread true information about God. Now, obviously, our lives don't save people, but they can attract people, intrigue people, and give us opportunities to speak the gospel and communicate who God is. So, beloved, our purpose from God is to know Him, to live for Him, and to spread the knowledge of Him in our homes, our churches, and the world. That really ought to be the concern of your life. It doesn't matter how old you are, whether you're a a, a young person or whether you're elderly, or whether you're in the workforce, doesn't matter what you do for work, where you go, or how you work with your hands, doesn't matter your station in life or the family dynamics in your home, you can fulfill your purpose from God in all of those things. To know God, to live for Him, and to spread the knowledge of Him to those around you. That is our purpose from God. Well, our third ingredient is knowing your promise from God. Knowing your promise from God. This is our third ingredient that fuels a life zealous for good deeds. Look at verses 2 and 3. He says, In the hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested even His word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. What is our promise from God? Very plainly stated, we have been promised eternal life. Now, before we get to the promise itself, notice how Paul inserts a statement here about God's character. The God who promised eternal life is a God who cannot lie. Now, why is that important? Well, you remember the the way that Paul describes the Cretans, you know, using one of their own prophets, uh, In verse 12, he says, Cretans are always liars. You can't trust a Cretan. Cretans don't even trust Cretans. But of course, lying is not just a Cretan problem, is it? In Romans chapter 3, verse 13, it's one of the key characteristics of the sinful nature that we all have. 
But even if we didn't have Romans 3, we would have ample evidence around us that lying is a universal human problem. Did you know that we even learn to lie before we learn to talk? You know, you see a little toddler and you say, did you eat that cookie you weren't supposed to eat? (laughs) Of course, all the evidence is right there. As we get older, our lies get more sophisticated and we become adept at presenting bold-faced lies as more believable than the truth. You know, lying is a particular offense to God because it's a distortion of reality and it makes it difficult to believe anything the liar is saying. And so Proverbs 6.16 says that it's an abomination to the Lord. And if you think it's not a big deal, listen to Revelation chapter 21, verse 8, which says, But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters, and you say, oh, I'm not any of those things. And then he says, and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Lying is a serious sin when not repented of. God hates lying. And he cannot lie because he is the God of truth. If, if God lied, all of creation would unravel. If God lied about anything, everything he said would be suspect. But it is impossible for God to lie, it says Hebrews 6.18. And so we can have absolute trust and assurance that whatever God promises, it's true and it will come to pass. That's why the doctrine of inspiration, by the way, demands the doctrine of inerrancy. God cannot inspire anything except the truth. And so, if the Bible were to affirm anything that's not true, whether it's a historical fact or some standard of right or wrong or a promise of the future, then it could not be considered the Word of God, not even in part. But it is the Word of God, and all of it is true. And so, when God promises eternal life, we can believe it. Now, what does eternal life mean? What is this promise? Well, eternal life is not primarily a length of life. Eternal life is a quality of life. As I mentioned earlier, Jesus defined eternal life as knowing God and knowing His Son, Jesus Christ, John 17, 3. We can know God today and thus have eternal life, and we will know God for eternity everlastingly in the life to come. In John 4, we read about Jesus speaking to a Samaritan woman at a well, and as as he asked her for a drink, she was kind of in shock that a Jewish man would ask a Samaritan woman for a drink, And, and Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus went on to say, everyone who drinks this water, meaning the well, will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give to him will never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Now what Jesus is doing here is he's speaking metaphorically to teach that receiving eternal life is like drinking water that finally and forever satisfies your soul. Everything we long for, everything we desire, everything we uh, seek hard to accomplish is satisfied not because we get what we want, 
but because we're so satisfied in Christ that we no longer desire those things like we once did. Jesus, or excuse me, John 6 tells us about a day in the life of Jesus when he started out at the beginning, beginning of the day being sought out by thousands of people. They had just received a free meal, free meal from him the day before, and they said, hey, it's the new day, uh, stomach is empty, and we're ready for another one, Jesus. And so knowing that they wanted that physical food and had no interest in the spiritual food that he had to offer, he intentionally spoke hard truths to them and drove them away. He went from being surrounded by throngs of thousands of people who were clamoring, clamoring for him to just having the 12 disciples around him. And so he asks them, do you, you do not want to go away also, do you? And Peter responds by saying what is one of my favorite statements in Scripture, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. What he's saying is your words satisfy us. Your words quench our thirst. We've given up everything because we've learned that when we are with you, we don't need anything else. We just want you. This reflects the sentiment that we find in Psalm 73, verses 25 to 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion, my inheritance forever. Eternal life, listen carefully, eternal life is knowing God and being satisfied in Him now and forever such that we need nothing else. We don't need money. We don't need possessions. We don't need health. We don't need success. We don't need freedom from suffering. We need nothing except God. This is what God has promised you. He has promised you Himself. Now notice how in verse 2, Paul identifies when this promise was made. He says, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. You might have a footnote that says a literal translation would read that this promise was made before times eternal four times eternal. In other words, God made this promise in eternity past before he created the universe. Before he made man in his image and before that man fell into sin, God promised eternal life. God promised himself. Now, if he made this promise in eternity past when there was no one else, to whom did he make the promise? Well, we find the answer in 2 Timothy chapter 1. You can flip back just a couple pages, 2 Timothy chapter 1. We find this in verses 8 and 9. 2 Timothy 1, verses 8 and 9. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of 
me his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose, there it is again, his own purpose and grace, which was granted to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Now, the the phrase from all eternity is the exact same phrase, before times eternal. Grace was granted to us in Christ Jesus before times eternal. Put another way, in eternity past, God the Father promised God the Son that He would save a people by giving them eternal life. Or think of it this way, even though the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit enjoyed perfect love and harmony for eternity, They lacked nothing. They didn't need anything. And yet the Father devised a plan where He would create a race of image bearers who would choose to rebel. And in response to that rebellion, God would put on display the panoply of His character, His love and His grace and His justice and His mercy and His kindness and His forgiveness. All of His character would be put on display and the manifestation of His grace in particular would result in reconciling some of those image bearers to himself, bringing them into the eternal loving relationship of the Trinity. Or here's yet another way to think about this using the metaphor of marriage. In Ephesians 5, Paul describes Jesus Christ as a groom and the church as a bride. And we are waiting for that final day where we will enjoy the marriage ceremony. And that's told to us in Revelation 19. But this is not the kind of dating relationship that we typically think of in our modern day. This is an arranged marriage. In eternity past, the Father promised the Son a bride, a people people whom He would love and care for and who would worship and serve Him for all eternity. And all of this, these promises and the actions that resulted from them is motivated by love. The the Father promised the gift of a bride to the Son out of love. John 3.35, it says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. And the Father predestined us for salvation out of love. Ephesians 1.5, In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself. Jesus submitted to the Father's plan out of love for him. He said, but so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly what the Father has commanded me. And because Jesus loves the Father, he also loves the gift that the Father has given him, and so it's out of his love for us that he gave his life for us. Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then finally, when salvation enters into our hearts and a sinner that was once hostile to God is now reconciled to Him, it produces a love for the Father and the Son. 1 John 4.19, we love because He first loved us. So eternal life is knowing God now and forever. And this was promised from the Father to the Son in eternity past as a result of the love that they have for one another. Well, finishing out what Paul says here, 
In our text, this promise made in eternity past was announced publicly at just the right time. Look at verse 3. But at the proper time manifested, this promise of eternal life was manifested at the proper time, even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God, our Savior. I wish we had more time, but I would encourage you to, uh, sometime after today or tomorrow when the Ecclesiastes class is posted, to listen to that class. Scott Mahoney uh, taught, and there's such a, a strong correlation between why did God hide the truth of eternal life for thousands of years? Well, he did, but at the right time, at the proper time, in fact, the phrase at the proper time uh, could be translated in his own time. At God's appointed time, the promise broke through time and space and was proclaimed and began to be fulfilled. What was hidden for thousands of years is now revealed. God's plan in eternity past is not just a, a general plan of things God hopes to accomplish someday. It was a precisely timed plan. According to Galatians 4.4, 4, it says, When the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. It was no accident that Jesus was born when He was born. It was specifically planned according to a timetable that God had set forth. And the same is true of His death. In John 17, he said, Jesus said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Ephesians 1.11 reminds us that God does all things according to the counsel of His will. And His will includes not just what will take place, but when it will take place. And so just as Mordecai encouraged Esther and reminded her that perhaps you have achieved royalty for such a time as this, so Paul understood that his commission by Christ was according to God's timetable. You know, in our lives, we may not understand God's timing. When a loved one dies, when a person gets transferred, when a close friend moves away, when you lose your job. But God does everything according to His perfect time. Our lack of understanding is not a lack of wisdom on God's part. God never makes mistakes. Everything he does in time, in the, everything he does in the time that he does it is intended to move his purposes forward and for his glory and our good. Well, as we close, how does the promise of eternal life fuel our life so that we are zealous for good deeds? Some of us, as I mentioned, have been studying Ecclesiastes on Sunday mornings. We've been doing a deep dive study on life under the sun. Under the sun thinking in Ecclesiastes is looking at life from the perspective that ignores the existence or the revelation of God. It's a secularist way of thinking. Life under the sun is a life with no regard to God. And what Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived and who sought to understand the meaning and significance of life under the sun, using the endless resources at his disposal, what Solomon found is a void. Emptiness, meaninglessness, vanity. 
Life apart from God is a black hole. It doesn't matter what you throw at it. It returns nothing of lasting value. It returns no lasting joy. It produces no lasting meaning. It has no purpose. And then at the end, you die and you're forgotten. And then after a couple of generations, it's as though you never even existed. Nothing you can do can change this reality. No amount of good deeds or righteous living can alter the outcome. If you try to live a good life apart from God under the sun, you will soon find how pointless it is. Well, Solomon didn't have the benefit of later revelation, but he did come to the right conclusion. Spoiler alert for those of you in the class. You, you already know this. He did come to the right conclusion that only, the only thing that makes life worth living is to have the foundation of fearing the Lord. The moment God enters the picture, as soon as you remove the canopy and you see that there is life above the sun and life after this life, factoring in the New Testament revelation, the calculus of life comes out completely differently. Knowing God leads to the understanding that I am made in His image and therefore I'm imbued with inherent dignity and worth. Because there is life after death, everything that happens has eternal impact. Because we have the Holy Spirit, we are never alone and His power is at work in us. Knowing God now and forever means that life is not about me There are purposes infinitely beyond me, but of which I am a part. Knowing God means that no matter what I do, even the most mundane things like eating and drinking can serve the purpose of bringing glory to my Creator. Knowing God and being known by God means that I don't have to be concerned what other people think of me. Knowing the righteous judge of the universe means that I don't need to be concerned if other people think wrongly or judge me wrongly. Knowing Jesus Christ died for me and removed my sin far from me means that I don't have to wallow in guilt and shame. Knowing Jesus and His suffering on my behalf means that He understands my pain and my sorrows. Knowing God and experiencing His forgiveness frees me and enables me to forgive others who have sinned against me infinitely less than I have sinned against God. Knowing God means that I no longer have to fear death. Now, we could go on and on and on. There's innumerable ways in which knowing God, having eternal life now and forever, fuels our life. It changes everything. So when you find yourself struggling to hang on in times of suffering, when you find yourself battling sin and often losing when you find yourself struggling to be motivated to grow in your knowledge of God, the solution is to remind yourself of who you are in Christ and whose you are. When the storms of life wear you down, like a solar-powered battery, exposure to the Son of God will revive you. Beloved church, we have a high position from God. We have a privileged purpose from God. And we have an eternal promise from God. Let these truths fuel your life. Let's pray.
Our Father, it, it is incomprehensible to us that in eternity past, you made such a promise. We can hardly begin to get our minds around this reality. And yet you've revealed it, and you call us to believe it. And I pray that for Hope Bible Church, for each person here, that we would recall these truths to our minds, that they would fuel us and motivate us and give us the joy of serving you and living our lives for the sake of Christ. In his name we pray, amen.